Good evening. Thank you for coming. Welcome back to round three of You Versus Yourself. Um, just a reminder if people can remember to turn off their cell phones uh, or put them on silent because it uh, can get quite uh, distracting. Um, I'd like to uh, thank um, Ms. Chaya Hecht for sponsoring tonight's uh, class. And this is in honor of her grandmother's yard site, Liba Bas Miriam. Her yard site was just um, yesterday, Chaf Aleph uh, Tevis. Mehir Neshama have a very, very great aliyah. Uh, so a beautiful class dealing with the root of Neshamas, of souls. So uh, Mehir Neshama rise higher and higher and higher to its source. And from there send a lot, a lot, a lot of light and bracha to you and to your entire family and everything that is needed in the spiritual and in the physical. Um, so um, this, uh, in the previous classes, we are discussing, we are um, addressing the intrinsic, inherent dilemma in the human condition. And that is the dual personality that we all experience. We have moments of extreme light. We have moments when we experience within ourselves a pure, pure self. We feel super idealistic and we're charged up with a desire to do good, to help, to be giving, to be kind, to do for our community. In general, we feel a very strong sense of purpose, a sense of meaning to our life. And then, a couple of hours go by, or days, sometimes even less than hours, just moments, and suddenly our entire consciousness, our entire awareness is completely different. We feel selfish, um, we're looking for gratification, we're looking for self-enhancement, we're looking for pleasure, we're looking for attention, recognition, and uh, seeking, seeking, seeking gratification and pleasure and, the, and, that, and of the permissible, and sometimes it, uh, we cross over even into the forbidden, desire things that are not kosher. And uh, we find within ourselves a, a constant swing in these, in these, we call it a mood swing, but over here it's an, not just a mood swing, but a, a complete different consciousness of, of sense of self, of who am I, what am I all about? A self that's looking for, for to be served all day, a self that feels like a king, and a self that feels like a humble servant that wants to serve and do good. So uh, that, that's, that's the question. Now, um, in the previous classes, the general answer of why we feel that way, according to the Tanya, is that we have two souls. We are the human, the human being, and particularly the Jewish person, is composed from two different souls. So we have two personalities within us. And they come from two different places, complete different beings. And they reside within, within us, within our heart, in one body, but they come from two different worlds, and they have a whole complete different sense of reality. So at the time, and one is a soul of darkness, and the other one is a soul of light. The soul of darkness, so at times when the soul of darkness is at the root of our consciousness, at the root of our awareness, so then that, those are the times that we feel extremely selfish and, um, and into, into uh, the, the pursuit of, of um, personal uh, happiness and gain and the like. When at the root of our consciousness is our spiritual consciousness, when, when our higher soul manifests, opens up, and is at the root of, of 
of our consciousness, then we experience a higher, higher desires, higher aspirations, higher ambitions. We're driven towards that which is godly, that which is holy, that which is good. We're into helping others and the like. Um, our life is a constant battle between these two consciousness, between two complete distinct souls. It's not just inclinations, where, we're, where we have one being and, and sometimes we're attracted by one thing and the other time we're attracted by another thing, by other things, but rather a complete world. Two souls, a souls, a different being, come from a different place. And the main thing is that these souls have a complete different sense of reality. A sense of themselves and the sense of the world around them. Um, in our previous class last week, we discussed and elaborated on the dark consciousness, on the dark soul. We explained its origins, where it comes from, why it is in a state, the root of its unholiness, why it is that way, what's its philosophy, what's its belief, how does it experience itself. And the general idea that we studied last and we learned last week is the darkness of the animal soul, of the animal consciousness in man, which is the main life force of the body, it's, it's not that it's extremely evil per se. We're not dealing with an evil being. It's just that it's not holy. And it has a certain distortion. The distortion is in the fact that it, it mis, misinterprets reality. And the reason why it does that is because the soul is born, it stems, it comes into existence in darkness. Which means it doesn't experience the truth, it doesn't see the truth, uh, it's, 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 it emerges in a state of concealment. It comes from, as he explained, the world of Kalipa. The shells are these very dark forces that God created, and he created them to cover on his light. When we say the light of God, we're not talking about just spiritual illumination. The light of God meaning the truth that God is at the core of all of existence, because God is the only being that truthfully exists, and He gives existence to all of existence. So for something to exist, that existence must be coming from God. This soul doesn't appreciate it, it doesn't feel it, it doesn't sense it. So therefore, it finds itself existing without a source. So if I exist without a source, then who should I serve? Then I am my own source. So I am all about me, because I am the foundation of my existence. Therefore, all of my existence is to take care of myself. Then the soul becomes a semi-God. That's the idea. The soul takes the place of God. That soul, the soul, the animal consciousness. And that's what we call ego. There is an ego, meaning a mis... mis an ego comes from a misunderstanding, from a, mis, from, a, from, a, from a misconstrued sense of self. You feel as if your existence is, 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 is self-sustained. So that's why it becomes a being that, 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 is, that is devoted all, all of the time to make itself feel good. Um, that, so what emerges from that is a big sense of I. I am. Now once I am, I want, I need, give me this, give me that. Notice me, recognize me. I want pleasure, I want happiness. Mine has a strong, strong sense of entitlement. That's that soul. Now depending on the chemistry of every person, we all have a different chemistry, which makes up the nature of that soul. So that I will manifest itself and express itself in a different way. Some people, the I expresses itself in a very arrogant manner. Other people, the main expression of that unholy I is that one is a seeking constant on the run, constant on the search for pleasure and the like. But that is, that's already the detail. That's the way, the way, the particular manner in which it expresses itself. But the root of the unholiness is the very notion that I exist for myself. Now the unholiness of that, again, doesn't have to be, it's not extreme evil. The unholiness of that is that it's a lie. It's just, it's, it's, it's an illusion. There's no such a thing as an existence other than God that has a self-generated self, self existence. God, He exists because He exists. And therefore, He's allowed to say, I am. No other creation is allowed to say, because it's just not true. Which means that if something exists, every second that it exists, it has a higher purpose. 
There's something preceding that being that's giving, saying you should be, you should exist. And, that ex- and the fact that, and the reason you're existing, the reason why you are, is because of an interest that I have in your existence. And that's the truth of, of our existence, that someone precedes us, is making us for that reason. And that's what, and if we're, and if we're conscious of that, then we're living in truth. A moment that a person forgets that and is just serving himself, nothing beyond himself, is an unholy moment. It's, an ho- it's, a, it's, it's a moment where the person is living a lie. You're living something that isn't true. Now, this is inherent to the human condition. We all enter into that. We all struggle with that darkness because that's the way God created us. The animal soul and that concealment is very, very much part of the way our thinking pattern, the way we all think, and our life is a constant battle to, we battle, we struggle to dig and discover our soul that is a soul of light, a soul that that feels the truth, and to push away or to, to move away from that dark consciousness of animal consciousness of selfhood. Now, that was the general idea of what we had spoken about in last week's class. Today's, tonight, we're going to focus on the other soul, the soul of light, the godly soul. Now again, the subject of the animal soul is not, is not nearly over. Because what we, generally, what we just did was just give a general overview of, of the general sense of beingness that that soul has. It has a sense of existence that is not in serving of Hashem. It's a misconstrued state of, of awareness. But we didn't get into the details of the particulars of the soul. How does it function? Because it's an entire being. It has an intelligence, it has an emotional, uh, a whole set of various different emotions and the like, and certain soul powers. All that is going to be discussed a little later. What we're going to do now is to try to get a feeling of the godly consciousness, of the godly soul. Where does that come from? So we hear, now why is it so important? So aside for to knowing who we are and understanding ourselves better, there's another very interesting thing. We all have... Um, spiritual moments. We have times when we feel, we feel something higher going on within, within ourselves. And um, the problem is that our ability to communicate and to define and to understand what those spiritual uh, feelings are is very, very minimal unless we study this subject matter, this material. Because um, the soul has a language. The soul has a whole experience. It's a heavenly experience. The soul is a heavenly being. And the soul comes into a body. The soul communicates with the body what it feels. The problem is that the body doesn't necessarily understand the language. So just like when you have an encounter with another person and you don't speak the same language and you're trying to communicate, so there is some kind of a communication. You can get a feeling of what the person wants through various gestures that they're making or facial expressions and, and the like, so they can communicate. But the communication is very, very limited. You're not getting most of what they're saying. You're not getting the full, the full message is not coming across. Only a very minimal part if you don't speak that language. And the same is with our soul. If we don't develop a vocabulary and we don't develop an understanding of the spiritual world of where the soul comes from and what the soul's appetites are and what the soul is all about and what the reality of the soul is. So even when we have a special moment because we did a mitzvah or something godly that we have a certain zechus and our soul opens up and we get a super surcharge of spiritual energy, we don't know what to make out of it. We don't understand what she's trying to tell us, what she wants, what is she all about. So the manner in which our soul communicates is through the mind. Even though the soul is higher than the mind, but it communicates her, her world and her reality to us via the mind, through the filter of the mind. So by understanding and learning about how the spiritual makeup of the soul is and where she comes from and what she's all about, it enables us to have a far richer spiritual life and to be able to facilitate the soul and therefore live a healthier, more purposeful, and more fulfilling life 
in, in, and, and mainly the fulfillment of our purpose for why God created us so that we should actualize our soul in our body down here below in this world. So first he makes a very, very powerful statement about the soul. He begins at the second soul, which is particularly a Jewish soul, is a chelek, he says, a very powerful, amazing thing, revolutionary thing. He says the soul, now it's interesting, this idea which he's going to say has become, today's days, it has become already a thought, an idea that has filtered or entered into mainstream, mainstream Torah, Torah, Torah knowledge in, in, all, in all circles. But initially, and many years ago, this was a phenomenal revolutionary idea. Now it's not an idea that, was, that the Tanya was the one who came up with. It's an idea that's mentioned in various Kabbalistic works already at a much earlier time from the Tanya, but it wasn't something that was spoken a lot of and that, people, that most people knew or most people recognized. The Tanya came and really developed this idea and really um, uh, perpetuated this concept and spread it all out all over, all over the world. And as I said today, today it's already in mainstream um, um, uh, Torah and, and, and the knowledge of, of, the, that, that, of this idea. And that is as follows. That the neshama is a chelek elakai mimal mamish. The Jewish soul is literally a piece of God from above. Now the word chelek elokai, a piece of God, comes from Job, from Eov, in one of the verses it says about chelek elokai, but there's various different interpretations of how the commentaries explain what chelek elokai means. The Kabbalists, however, take this literally, and they explain the soul is a piece of God. Now the Tanya, however, adds two words. He says, mimal from above, and he says, mamish, literally. It's a piece of God from above. By saying from above, he's saying that the soul, meaning it's not just coming from some godly state, from some godliness, it's coming mimal. The soul is coming from a very, very exalted state of godliness. Or even greater than godliness, the soul is a piece of God himself. Like a piece broken off from a cracker, the soul is a piece, a, a piece of Hashem himself. And that this is not some exaggeration. We want to say how pure the soul is, but he adds the word mamish. Literally it is that way. That means each and every single one of us as Jews possess within ourselves this super entity, a piece of God, something that is of Hashem. And we know a piece of something really is, has, when you, or a piece of something, something of essence, even a little piece is the whole, is, is, might be in a microcosm, but it's the whole thing. That means every single Jew has a piece, is, 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 has within him a spark that is Hashem, which is awesome in terms of its... Now, because we can say, in other words, if just to say that this is a holy soul wouldn't require or wouldn't demand that we say that the soul is a piece of Hashem. The very fact that the soul is coming from a place above the clouds, above the klipa, the animal soul is a soul that lives in darkness. It lives in concealment because it's created in concealment. It emerges after the klipa. So it's dark. So it doesn't know of God and it knows, it knows only of self. However, the soul, if the soul is coming from higher than the klipa, higher than, than those shells and those, and those husks that are covering, so it's coming from a place where, of light where it can see. What can it see? It can see how all of existence is emerging from God and therefore it's in, in, const, in, a, in a state of perpetual submission to God, that too would make the soul holy. But he's saying that the soul is not just a holy being coming from the worlds of holiness. The neshama is a piece of God. It's not part of the creation. It's part of the creator itself. With these words, he's raising the soul infinitely high. And he says it doesn't make a difference who the person is. This is not as a result of our work, it's not as a result of our activities, of our actions, of our virtues, the virtues of our parents. This is something that is a gift that we're born with and it's every single Jew. Even a person who is very, very mundane, even a person who is very materialistic, 
and we don't really don't see a trace of spiritual energy in them, even a person who is sinful, and even a person who is an extreme sin, sinner, even an extreme evil human being, that unholiness and that evil is connected to their body and to their animal consciousness. Their soul is a piece of God Himself, a part of Hashem. That's the awesomeness of this statement. It's literally a piece of Hashem. Now, um, where do we, 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 this idea, the Nishama being of Hashem, that I mentioned, saying that the Nishama is a piece of God means that the Nishama is higher than all the creations. Which would mean something like this. Even angels in heaven, who, and, you know, we, we mentioned in the other class, there are many, many, many levels of angels, higher and higher and higher. Even if we were to reach the highest, highest, the angel, the archangel Michael, or Gabriel, the highest angels, those that reside right beneath the throne of glory. And those are soul, those are angels. That if we were to see them, we would be blinded by light. To see an angel, to see one of those archangels above, it's incredible. The brightness, the light that they give off. Their intelligence, their understanding, their fervor and their service of God. It's, it's, we can never fathom the greatness, the sublimity of these angels. Nevertheless, he's saying over here, the soul of the lowliest Jew is greater than those angels. How much greater? Infinitely greater. Infinitely higher. Endlessly higher. Because those angels above, as great as they are, as deep as their understanding is, and as, as, as great as their love of God is, and as much light as they have, after all, they're creations. And they have a limit and boundaries, as we discussed in last night's class. Every creation has a limit and has a boundary. The neshama doesn't have any boundaries. Because the soul is part of God, and God is boundless. Which means that if an angel, for instance, wants to grow and get closer to the level of a neshama, to a soul, if an angel would increase its knowledge, would grow in its understanding, and would refine itself to even higher levels of spiritual sensitivity, and it would refine itself more and have higher levels of love, and greater understanding, and it would go on like that for billions of years, continuously growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, it would never, ever, ever be able to reach the level of the lowest soul. And the reason is because there is an unbridgeable gap. The gap between the finite and the infinite. A, 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 a impassable, an impassable um, space that there is between the creator and the creation. And that's how the respect, the awesome respect we get for every single Jew because of that neshama that we, have, that we possess, which is a peace. And this is enough to make a person celebrate all their life. To know that within me, and when this is not, we're, talking about, we're not talking about the soul in heaven, the soul that's in me and us and all of us, we say in the morning, you gave me back my neshama. Elokai neshama shenasata bi haneshama. The neshama that you gave into me, to know and to understand that this soul is eternal. It's as eternal as God is. It always was. It always will be. It's made out of 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 stuff. Which stuff? Absolute reality. It's real. It's it's so it's so uplifting, the understanding and the knowledge of how. Amazing that the neshama is. Now, um, where do we see what's the this idea that souls are a piece of God and not of the creation? So the first thing is, he says, it says when God created Adam Arishon and he made and he brought the first soul into existence, it said, "Vayipach biapav nishmas chayim," that Hashem blew into his nostrils a soul of life. We also say in davening, every morning, in the blessing where we thank God for our neshama, for restoring the soul, we say, And you blew the soul into me. Hashem has blown the neshama. The difference between the two verses 
is one verse is speaking about the human being as the human race, or Adam Arishon, the first neshama, and then the we see that we apply the same idea that the way the soul came into existence is by God blowing it, is something that is an individual thing to each and every one of us. God blows the neshama into us. Now, this now God, of course, is not a body. So we need to understand why the Torah uses the analogy of blowing. What is the meaning of blowing? Because if he's not a body, so so obviously there's no there's not we can't understand it in the in the literal sense. So there is a meaning. The Torah is trying to convey something to us on understanding and recognizing the uniqueness of our souls by understanding what is special about blowing. So here we have the difference in the manner in which God created all of the universe and all of existence and the manner in which Hashem brought the neshama into being. All of the universe and all of existence was created through God's speech. We say a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, Ba'asara mamoros nivra olam. With ten utterances, ten sayings, the world was created. In davening we say, Bidvar Hashem shamayim nasu. With the word of God, the heavens were created. Heavens meaning even the spiritual realms, heaven, not just the sky or the firmament, the heavens, even the spiritual world, and the highest, highest spiritual realms, including the most sublime angels and, 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 and uh, celestial beings above, all of them emerged into existence by God speaking. He spoke and they came into existence. The world is a product of God's speech. One exception, when it came to creating the soul, God didn't speak, Hashem blew the soul. What is the difference? I mean, obviously, speech doesn't mean speech the way we understand it, and blowing can't mean physical blowing. So, but we need to understand the content of speech and the content of, of the blowing, and then we can understand how this can be applicable to God. And that is the difference between speech, see, in both cases. The reason why we're using, it says that God created the world through speech, is because speech is transmission. You're transmitting something. And not only is speech transmission where you're transmitting concepts and ideas and feelings, there's actually a physical transmission. Because when you're speaking, you're giving breath. You can't speak without breath. So you're transmitting breath. For God to create the universe, to create the world, Hashem had to transmit. What did He transmit? He transmitted of Himself. Okay, That's what breath is. Breath, you're taking, that breath was once in you, part of you, part of your life force. And when you're breathing and exhaling, or when you're speaking, which is a form of transmitting breath, you're taking of yourself and you're giving it. Being that God is the true existence, He is reality, he is beingness. So when Hashem wants something else to exist, a world to exist, birds to exist, flowers to exist, trees to exist, an ocean, a sea, a land, mountains, when angels, sun and moon and planets, when He wants anything to exist, He must give them of His beingness. He has to give them existence. So how did He give them their existence? He gave it to them by speech. That's how we communicated, transmitted energy life for their existence. Now there is, however, two ways in which he transmitted. When he transmitted to create the universe and the spiritual universe and all of existence, he did it through speech. When he brought about the soul, he blew. Let's take the difference between blowing and speaking from, from a, the human experience. When a person speaks, as we said earlier, physically, you're transmitting breath, but the breath that you're transmitting is sort of secondary breath. It's not from your essential life force, from your tank of life, from your inner reserve. You speaking, it's almost like we have a special tank of breath that we can speak. That's why you can go on speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking for a very long time and you don't get tired, even though you're communicating and giving off breath and breath is, is, is life, that's your very oxygen, but you're not giving your very oxygen. You're giving oxygen. You're taking that oxygen from 
the outer, sort of an outer chamber of your lung. I don't mean physically that way, but you're giving off a, 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 an outer breath. And that's why you don't get tired. But when you blow, you get very tired. When you're blowing forcefully, not a light blowing. When you're blowing forcefully, you get very tired. Like if you ever, I'm like, okay, you blow a balloon, it's a little tired. But when you're blowing, when your kids, you know, when you go and you, and you buy them a tube, a, a, uh, a, for, for, for swimming, a swimming tube. So you start huffing and puffing. And, you, and after just a few minutes of blowing or just a minute or two and you're wiped out, you're exhausted. Why? Because you just blew your life out. Because this is your very inner oxygen you're from your inner reserve and now you've put a chunk of your life into that, into that, uh, into the two. That is the amazing, that's the idea of the difference between blowing and speech. Here you're giving your inner life you're giving something that makes up your very life, and here you're giving something extra. Um, it's attached to you or added to you, but it's not, it's not yourself. This is the analogy we're using to God. When God created the world, God created the world, all of creation, He created it from a secondary, from a secondary power. Meaning to say, Hashem didn't transmit or break off a piece of Himself. In the creation of the universe, what was God using? He was using His creative power. Creative power. His creative power to make things. Like a person has a creative power to make, to do things, to do actions. So God took His creative energy and created the world. Anything that, everything that exists. But it wasn't Himself. When He made the human being, as we said earlier, it's a piece of God. He blew he broke a piece of himself off. Not like but the human being, of course, when we blow, we get weak and we get tired. That element doesn't apply to God. doesn't get weak and he didn't get tired. But nevertheless, the idea that breath is coming from the inner human being, it's essential to the person's very life, it's a piece of who you are, that is applicable to God too. When God created the soul, he took his very self, separated it, and that's the neshama. That's the soul. Now, um, another very, very essential and very important point. In the understanding and, the, and, and, and of the difference of all of existence and the neshama and the soul, is, which he doesn't say here in this part of the Tanya. He relates this later in the Tanya, the later part, but I think it's very important to have this Understanding over here too because it, it helps clarify and understanding the uniqueness of the soul. The difference between the neshama and all of creation is not only in the soul origins. If the neshama is coming from the inside of God or it's coming from his outer creative power like the rest of creation, but it's also in the manner in which that energy produced the creation in the manner in which that energy evolved into the soul. Which means something like this. By creation it says, God spoke and He created the world. Through speech He created. And what does that mean? God spoke and He said, Vayomer Elohim yehi oyer. Hashem said, let there be light. He commanded. His words commanded, let there be light. His words are super potent. They're omnipotent. They can do magic. They can do what no one else can do. They can create something that didn't exist. Light came into existence. A moment before God spoke and said, let there be light, light did not exist. God commanded, let there be light. His words, boom, created light. Light is now here. What is light? What is light? Light is a creation. It once wasn't, now it is. It's a new thing. Who created it? What's the, what's the inner power behind that light? God's words that is commanding it to exist. But there is a certain point where the divine energy ends and the creation begins. The light is not God. The light is a product of God, a creation of God. Same as also when Hashem said, let there be all the other creations, a firmament, and Hashem said, let there be the sun and the moon, and when He said, let there be uh, birds, and birds include also the angels in heaven, they are also, they're called, meaning all creations, they are not God or godliness, 
they are products of the divine energy that God created. The soul doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God blew, and the blowing, which he emitted energy, and that, emin- and that energy produced a soul. And that energy commanded and said, let there be a soul. It doesn't say that. It says, Vayipach bi'apav nishmas chayim. He blew into his nostrils a soul of life. Which means that the soul is the breath itself. The breath itself is the neshama. Not it creates the neshama. It is the soul. Which means that the soul is divine. It's, it's, that, ener- that, that breath was in God, part of God. And when it was in God, it was indivisible. You, you couldn't point and say, here is where that... It, it just is, it is Hashem. It was emanated, it emerged, and now it is the neshama. It didn't create a neshama. So here the neshama, the rest of the creation has, is twice removed from God. What do we mean twi- twice removed? First of all, it's coming from an outer energy, not from an inner gen energy. Meaning even the divine energy that God used to create it is not essential to who God is. It's a creative power that he has. That's number one. That's the first disconnect, so to speak, of the creation to Hashem. Second disconnect is that that energy is not the world. That energy produces the world, makes the world. So it's two, it's, it has two elements that are separating it from, from the divine reality. The nishama, however, has two advantages. Number one, it's not emerging. It's not coming from the outer life force of Hashem. It's emerging from the inner life force of God. And number two, it is that very life force itself. Not created by it. Then he, so that's one idea of where we saw the uniqueness of, of the neshama, the superiority of the soul. Second element, as he says, is, is there's a medrash that says that the Jewish people have re, uh, arose in God's thoughts. It says that prior to creation, before God created the world, he thought of certain things that got him excited to create the world. Certain things were in his mind prior to creation. So it says the Torah was here before God created the world, 2,000 years, and so on. Uh, Gan Eden, I think, and Tshuva, and various different things that God, that they preceded the creation. One of the things that preceded creation were the Jewish people. Because they arose, meaning their thought about them arose, he thought about it before he created the world. That's a simple meaning. How, 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 how we would understand the Medrash, not from the esoteric point of view. But from the esoteric point of view, as the Tanya sees it, he's saying like this. Yisrael Olu B'machshava means that literally the Jewish people arise in God's thoughts. It means that the Jewish people stem from Hashem's thoughts. So this is again, same idea as the difference between speech and, 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 and blowing, but in another, in another format. Because when we take a look at the meaning, the rest of creation, as we said earlier, is a product, it is emerging from Hashem's words, from God speaking. The neshama is coming from God's thinking. What's the difference between machshava and dibur, between thought and speech? Speech is something that, re- that, that is all about the outside of the human being. Meaning not only is speech, literally in the literal sense, you only speak to others, so you're giving your... The, 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 the point of speech is to take ideas, feelings, and, and whatever information, and transmit it to, your, to, to others, but the whole power of speech is the power through which you can exit yourself and relate to others. That's its power. So it's about the outside. It's not about you. If there is no others, then this wouldn't, you wouldn't even need this power. For yourself, you don't need it. Its entire essence is about the outside. However, thought is a manner in which you communicate or transmit, communicate, or transmit to yourself. Your experience within yourself, your knowledge, you experience ideas, you experience your own feelings, it's all in your thought. So thought is for yourself. It's your inner world. It's about you. Speech is about the outside. All of creation comes from God's speech, 
because all of creation is outside of God. The neshama is private. The neshama is intimate. The neshama is God. That's why it's within Hashem's thought. So this is a, a second illustration to this, to this Kabbalistic idea that souls are of the inside of God as opposed to the rest of creation that is outside, is another, uh, uh, an outer existence. And the third idea, and again, all illustrating that same point, and that is that the Jewish people are called children of Hashem. Next week's parasha, I think, maybe it's even in this week, but I think it's in parasha's bow, when before the last plague, Hashem sends Moshe to Paro and demands that he should release the Jewish people. God says, B'ni b'chayri Yisrael, my firstborn chi- child, the Jewish people. And because you've messed with my firstborn, I'm going pl- to bring a plague and I'm going to smite your firstborn. So God calls the Jewish people my firstborn child. Later in the Torah, we have another phrase in Parshas in, in Devarim, in the Parshas Re'eh, where it says over there, Banim atem l'ashem You are children for God, to God. Simply, as we always understand this, is that God loves us very much. He loves us like a father loves a child. We're children. God is God, and we're just, we're mortal human beings. God loves us like a parent loves a child. That's the idea that is being conveyed. The Kabbalists and the Tanya take this very literally. We are children to God because the same relationship, the same biological relationship that there is between parent and child, that very same biological relationship exists between God and the soul. The soul is literally a child of Hashem. What does that mean? The neshama is a child of God. So let's take a look at the physical composition or the makeup of a child or the, 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 the connection between parent and child, between father and child. And that is like this. Father creates a child. So where does a child come from? So there is the intimacy, which is the product, which later results in the creation of the child. And the father is transmitting a substance um, to create the child. Now, this is produced in the, in the, father's, in the father's body. But the, what he says over here is that the origins of the, 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 the procreative substance that is responsible for the making of the child, it really originates in the father's brain. It starts in the mind, in the brain of the father. And the reason for that is, just in, because like, uh, again, in the world of science, I don't know if you'll have a study that says that the child, that this is produced in the mind, but spir- in the writings of, of the spiritual, of the, of the uh, Kabbalists relate this to the mind, and the reason is, we can see it physically, is that the person needs to have a certain concentration, a certain, stimulus, a certain a stimulation of the brain in order to be able to produce a child. So we see that the beginnings of the creation of the procreative substance is beginning in the brain. And it travels through the spine, but again, as it begins in the brain, it's more of a metaphysical thing. It's not, it's very sublime, it's, a, it's an excitement of the mind. Something of the very brain of the father is being transmitted and later, and that's responsible for the creation of the child. It's now, and that's why we see that the child that is born is similar, has all the features of the father, all the physical features, or a lot of the physical features of their father, again, of the mother too, being that they're partners. But aside from that, it's not only that, the father is taking in that substance, he is literally putting a piece of his psychological self, his emotional, intellectual self, he's putting his very soul into it. So you're dealing with a, it might appear as just a physical substance, but in that substance is the DNA, not only of the physical human being, but also of the spiritual human being, also of the soul of the parent, the soul of the father is within that substance, and that is being transmitted to the child. This is the idea of the Jewish people are children to God. Because the Jewish neshama also begins in the brain of God, just like a child begins in the brain of the father. What does it mean in the brain of God? What does this mean in the brain of God? So, um, we, in, the, in, in the Tanakh, there are many references that Hashem has 
uh, in intelligence. Right? Hashem is wise and the like. And in the writings of Kabbalah, there is a, a, the, the idea that there are divine attributes. And there are Eser Sephiras, ten divine attributes. Seven of them are emotional attributes. And then there's three, the higher attributes are intellectual attributes. The first of the attributes is called wisdom, Chachma. So just like a child originates, begins in the wisdom in the brain of the father, so too the neshama originates. All souls originate, that's where they come from, is drawn, just like the, literally the child is drawn from the father's brain. That's interesting. You know, transmission of the brain is not only when you're creating a child. When a teacher is teaching information, when you're giving knowledge, you're also giving of your brain. You're giving your ideas, you're giving your, your, um, your concepts, you're giving in, your uh, wisdom is being shared to the student. So the person is transmitting of their brain. Which one is a higher transmission? So generally we'd say, well, in, in, in a physical intimacy, you're transmitting of a, physical, of a physical transmission. When a person is giving over concepts, giving over ideas, you're giving a spiritual transmission, you're giving of your mind, you're giving of your knowledge, you're giving, that's true. But on the other hand, we find that a physical transmission is much, much higher in terms of what is being given over. Because when a person is giving over ideas and information, what is, it's the, the recipient, okay, the recipient, the student, is gonna get the idea, is gonna conceive the idea. But in order for the student to conceive the idea, first of all, the student has to have the student has to have a mind of his own. He needs to have a, a, an ability, a, a developed mind, so he can receive this idea of the teacher. If the student doesn't have a developed mind, then it just, it's not being given over. Meaning the teacher is not giving over their brain. They're giving over the information that they have in their mind, but they're not giving over their mind powers. When a parent is creating a child, the child is created with not only, it's not, the child is not created with the ideas of the father, he's created with the very same wiring of the father's mind, which means he thinks like his father. His, his, his way of, meaning if a, if a person is a very sharp, a very sharp mind, very likely that the child is gonna be similar to the father and have that kind of sharpness. If a person has a very creative mind, then it's possible that their offspring and children, most likely, are also going to have. They're going to inherit that. They're going to inherit that creativity. Person has a very analytical mind, so the child is born prone to that kind of a brain, that kind of a thinking, which means the transmission is not of the array or ideas of your mind. You're giving over the very substance of the soul powers themselves are being given over, and that's the very reason. Also, why it has to be so physical. Because it's so sublime, because the soul, because the person is cutting out a piece of himself, a piece of his soul, a piece of the very inner makeup that makes up the inner anatomy of, what, of who he is and what he is, it's too abstract, too deep for it to be given over in a spiritual way. The only way it can be given over is to make it very physical, and that's how it can be given over. As opposed to um, a person giving over information, being that you're not giving over your essential brain or essential power of wisdom or intelligence, giving over only ideas, for that reason, it can be given over in a more abstract way. But the condition is that the student has to have a mind of his own and be able to perceive. Now true, a student that studies from a teacher a very long time is not only going to get from that teacher an idea or two, the teacher is going to forge and develop the student's mind, but not in the way like a child. The child will always have a certain resemblance to the father much more than, the, than, it, than a student can ever have by studying and learning by a teacher. Because this is more of an outer input, and this is an inner, inherent, intrinsic uh, 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 um, similarity because they're coming from the same essence. This is all explaining how deep the connection and the, trans and, the, and the creation of father and child is. Now this is also when we're talking about God bringing about the neshama. Hashem's very self, with all the divine talents, with all that make God and His infinite intelligence and His infinite power is, in, is transmitted into every single soul. Of course, in this very, very small 
microscopic uh, way. But the nisham is a piece of Hashem from above. All souls. And that's why we are called children of Hashem. Now the question is, if this is the case, this would seem to imply, based on all of this, that all souls are equal. All souls are equally holy. Because all souls are coming from the divine wisdom. And, um, and again, just one thing I had left out, and that is that one can argue and say, okay, I thought the nisham is a piece of God. Now we're saying that the nisham is a piece of God's attribute. The attribute of wisdom coming from God's brain. God essentially doesn't have a brain. It's the attribute of wisdom of God, and that's where the neshama comes from, just like the parent-child relationship. So that's why he adds something very important. And he brings from Maimonides that God and his wisdom are one. God is unified with his attributes, with perfect unity. So he himself, which is of course higher than attributes, God is infinite and undefinable with any kind of definition, Nevertheless, he unites with his attributes, including his wisdom, and he and his wisdom become one. We don't understand that. He brings from Maimonides, it's unfathomable to us, because in human beings, our mind is separated from us. There is us, and there is a mind. I have a mind, but me and my mind are two things. But by God, he and his mind are one. So Hashem is one with his attribute of wisdom. So if the neshama comes from the divine wisdom, it means that the neshama is literally coming from God itself. But the question over here is, according to this, all souls are equal. Because all souls come from Hashem Himself. And God Himself is, not, is indivisible. Hashem doesn't have higher parts and lower parts. The problem with that is that anywhere one opens up any kind of Kabbalistic uh, literature, Kabbalistic book, you're going to find that there's a whole discussion about the various different levels of souls. Higher souls, lower souls, all kinds of souls. Souls coming from this world and souls coming from that world. Souls that are a higher part of Adam's soul and lower part. But here we're saying that all neshamas originate in the attribute of wisdom in God's brain. And the explanation that he gives is that yes indeed. All neshamas in their quintessential origins and where they begin are equal. There is no difference between the, the highest soul, the greatest person, between the neshama of Moshe Rabbeinu and the neshama of the simplest Jew living in our generation. No difference. In the original, original source. Because all neshamas start and are, are stem from Hashem, and Hashem is one, and therefore all neshamas are one. However, this that it says that there is great variation and differentiation and gradations of souls, and it says when we speak about vari variations and differences of souls, we're talking about very, very extreme things. Um, meaning, the analogy that is given in, 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 in Kabbalistic works is they say like this, there are, all neshamas really are stem from Adam's soul, from the primordial soul. That's Adam Arisham, his neshama. Hashem blew into Adam's nostrils a soul of life. So all neshamas are part of that soul. But they use the analogy of a body, and they say like this, just like a human body, there is the top of the body, and there is the bottom of the body. There is the brain, and then there's the other parts of the body, the inner organs, the brain, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the spine. And then we have the outer, the, the arms, the hands, the fingers, the nails, your feet, and the lower part, the calves, the, 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 the ankles, and the very, very bottom are the heels. Now, there's a tremendous, tremendous difference between the brain and the heels. The brain is where 99% of the activity of the human experience is happening. That's where you feel, that's where you know, that's where you explore, that's where most of what's going on is happening in the brain. The rest of the body maybe is 1% of the experience of, of... The heels don't really feel much. They're very, very tough skin. Very, and they're, besides maybe just physical growth, there's not much that the heels that the heels experience or, or, or uh, achieve. Nevertheless, it's, that's part of the body. But we see the, a, a, a very, 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 very great difference between the two. So he says like this, and that's why, so it's, when they want to des describe the differences of souls, they say there are souls of the earlier of ge generations which are considered to be the brain of Adam. They come from Adam and 
meaning literally they come from Adam Arishon's head. They're, they were part of Adam's brain. Then there are neshamis of later generations, of lesser quality, and they're considered the heart or the lower limbs. And then you have neshamis later and later and latter souls. Finally, you have the souls from the last, last generations, which are considered the heel souls. They're at the very, very, very bottom. And the souls that are called the toes and even the toenails. The very, very, very end of, of, the, of the neshama. Now this is, right, and it's just like this. Now who are they? So the neshama is like of Adam, of, of uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, or the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and Moshe Rabbeinu, and these were the brain of Adam. And generally the entire generation was considered the head of the generation that went out of Egypt, which received the Torah. They were very, very, very high neshamas. These were all super mega souls. But then, as we go through, the lower generations, our generations are lower souls. And then within each generation itself, we have the higher souls, the souls of the tzaddikim, the saintly people of the generation and the leaders of the generation. They are considered the brain of that generation. And then you have the lower souls which are considered the feet of that generation. Which means that within the heel, or within the bottom, within the heel, within the feet, there is the head of the feet, and the, and the middle of the feet, and then finally down to the very bottom of the feet, which are the lower, lower souls. That's how different, and he mentions also that even in the final generation, lowest generations, some neshamis are really head souls. They are souls not only considered head comparison to everyone else, they originally do come from the brain, brain, brain of other Marish. But how does that fit with what we learned over here that all neshamas stem from the same place? How can we have all of them come from the same place and then you'll have such a great um, uh, difference and, and of higher neshamas and lower souls? So we're going to elaborate on this next week, but just short and brief, he says one idea. And that is um, using the analogy of what we spoke about before of a child as a child develops from the brain of the father. So there too we find something like this. Initially, when the father is producing a child, in the seminal fluid that is the source of the child, that's the source of all of the child, the entire child. The brain, the feet, uh, the hands, every part of the child. And um, if you will take a microscope and you, will, and you will try to find in the drop, you try to find where is the brain and where are the feet, what are the toes, you won't really see it. It's just a simple substance that contains, I guess, the DNA, the code of the entire person, but over there it's still in an indivisible state, all one. When that um, substance is, it resides within the womb of the mother for nine months, during that time is when the child emerges. And here is where differentiation begins and separation begins. The part of it will become, will emerge and will produce a small little baby brain, but it's a brain. And then as it will continue to evolve, it will continue to evolve into all the other limbs, higher limbs and lesser limbs. Eventually at the very, 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 very end of the pregnancy, the very last outer parts of the person are the hair and the, and, and the nails, and then finally the toenails. That's at the very, very, very end. But all that change and transformation is taking place not in the world of the father, it's taking place in the world of the mother. In the time that the, that, the, that, that the baby is being produced in the mother's womb, that's when the, it is dissected and all this emerges and all this is developed. The same is also with souls. In the original soul, as all souls relate to God, as it's coming from Hashem, every single Jew is equally his child. Every single Jew is of his brain, is equally godly. The difference is only when Hashem takes the neshamas and He puts them into the mother's womb. The mother's womb would mean in the world, in the spiritual worlds above, there are many worlds, where the pregnancy takes place, there are levels above in which is considered the womb, where souls are being developed. In that process of the world where the souls are being developed, over there there are some souls that emerge on a higher level, which means they don't change much as it comes into the world dynamics. It remains as it was initially in God's brain, just like that element of 
the creative uh, of the of the of the father, which tra- which later result in the son's brain. If you take out the two brains, the father's brain and the son's brain, they're both made out of the same material, same thing. Didn't ch- there's not there isn't much change. Then there are certain certain parts of the child that are further developed and are changed. So similar to that, there are souls that remain in their pristine state, and those are what we call the higher souls, the brain souls. And then there are souls that are processed that are processed in this in this um, in the in the journey down. Some souls change. All the rest of the souls change. How much they change, it's up to God, wherever He wants that soul to be. And that will determine the difference of neshamas. But at the root essence, all neshamas are the same. We're going to discuss this next week and understand the relationship of a neshama after it's changed, what's its relationship to its original beginnings. Is it changed and cut off from its beginning? Or does it still maintain a connection to the infinite light but to the infinite dimension of God where the neshama was originally. Be'ezra Sashem, next week, Tuesday, we shall continue. Take care, everyone. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful week. Any questions um, about the subject?